By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. You reach adulthood and suddenly you're spending like at least a third of your life pursuing money and people are talking about mortgage rates and swap rates and bond yields and this and that and the other. It's like, and you're just expected to know what it all means. But were you ever taught it? I never was. Today I'm joined by Rob Dix. Now Rob is an investment fund advisor and he's the co-presenter of one of the UK's most popular business podcasts called The Property Podcast. Rob is also the co-author of The Ultimate Guide to Property Investing, which is the Bible of property investing in the UK. And his most recent book is called The Price of Money, How to Prosper in a Financial World That's Rigged Against You. I realized that I'd been working in and around money for like 10 years and I didn't really understand where money came from, how it works and all the rest of it. And if I didn't, then what chance does anyone else have? Uh, in this conversation, we kind of split up into three parts. In the first part, we talk about what money is and how money works and some of the complications around things like inflation and interest rates and the cost of living crisis. And the conclusion really of the first part of the conversation is that we live in a financial world that is rigged against normal people like you and me. The core thing that is important to understand and why you could say it's rigged against you, if you're guaranteed to lose buying power by saving money, then that's not good. Then in the second part of the conversation, we talk about Rob's five principles for being able to prosper in a financial world that's rigged against us. And then we end with a bit of a discussion around property and around business specifically. Ultimately, what you earn is kind of a multiple of how much value you create and how many people you can reach to create that value for. Your earning power, especially when you're young, is the best financial asset you can ever have. So Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This feels like a pretty weird moment for me because I've been listening to your voice. I since like I've been listening to your voice since like 2017 <laughs> when I first got into the idea of property investing through your podcast. Mm -hmm. And then I read the book that you and the other Rob wrote, uh, The Ultimate Guide to Property Investing mm -hmm. or something like that, which literally taught me everything I know about property investing. Amazing. And I've also invested in four properties through your company. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I saw that you'd written this book, I was like, oh, sick, we've got to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on. It's great to be here. And like, since we, after you read the book, I think, it's, I can't remember where I sort of, I think your name kind of popped up as a buyer. I was like, hang on, that's Ali, because I, I was like watching your stuff by then. And so it's like, yeah, kind of on weird parallel tracks. Exactly. So we're going to talk all, all things money. Um, so the title of your book is The Price of Money, How to Prosper in a Financial World That's Rigged Against You. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking we start off talking about kind of understanding the whole money system. And then we, I want to talk about your five rules for mm -hmm. kind of money slash getting rich, slash investing, slash saving, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I was thinking in the third part, we would talk about all things property. Um, you buy and also rent your property, which is yep. kind of what I do. So it'd be interesting to talk about that. And I'd love to hear more about the economics of the business you've created around the idea of property investing. How Absolutely. does that sound? Sounds good to me. Fantastic. Okay. So why did you decide to write a book about money? Well, I got interested in economics around about 2008 because of the, the kind of what the hell's happening here type thing. But I kind of was interested in it as a, as a hobby. And then 2020 happened, which was like a weird year for every possible reason. But that's when like, we just had a whole decade of like, there is no magic money tree. It was a decade of austerity. It was all about getting rid of the deficit and all that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, we, we've got to keep saving money. It just doesn't just grow on trees. Then suddenly they need an extra 450 billion pounds to fight COVID. So it's like, boom, okay, we've got it. 450 billion, let's go and spend it and let everyone, pay everyone to stay at home, pay for people to go out to eat. Remember that? Like all this really weird stuff. It's like, oh, hang on a minute, what, what is going on here? And I realized that I'd been working in and around money for like 10 years. 
And I didn't really understand where money came from, how it works, and all the rest of it. And if I didn't, then what chance does anyone else have? And so I just kind of wanted to get to them, unravel this mystery of what the heck it's all about. And I think so, so much of the time, people kind of put it in the too hard box and go, well, you know, it's all these very clever economists, it's all these fancy words, I can't possibly understand it. But I have no real qualifications, I'm not particularly smart. I just kind of did a lot of reading and figured it out and wanted to kind of put it into a form to save someone else doing all that reading. And so in like five hours, they could get to where I got to in 500 hours. Fantastic. Um, and so what was your understanding of money growing up? And I guess, uh, you know, viewers and listeners might be able to relate to it because we're not really taught a lot about money in school. Not at all. I mean, I think we massively inherit money blueprints from our parents. And so what you're, you're kind of, you'll get all these, all these weird, people weird about money as well, right? Like people have very strange attitudes about it. it most of the time, it doesn't make logical sense. People just kind of have these beliefs and fears and things around money that you kind of inherit from the people around you when you're young. But you don't talk about it, or at least in my family, we don't, I don't think most families you end up talking about it. And then at school, I think we might have had like one lesson once about something to do with it, but that's about it. Lots of oxbow lakes and stuff like that, but nothing yeah. would actually something be useful. And so you never really learn. And so you end up in this weird position where you reach adulthood and suddenly you're spending like at least a third of your life pursuing money. You don't really know what it is. And you're expected to make all these decisions about money. And people are talking about mortgage rates and swap rates and bond yields and this and that and the other. It's like, and you're just expected to know what it all means. But were you ever taught it? I never was. No. Yeah, I think it's like, um, it's still one of those things that, you know, even though I've spent the last, I, I guess, like six six or 10 years building a business that, well, you know, by definition is pursuing money to some to some degree. I still have to really try and wrap my head around, okay, interest rates, interest mm. rates are going up. What the frick does that mean? Okay, I vaguely understand inflation, but like, Two percent? Like, why is inflation good? Why is inflation bad? Like, why can't why can't we just print more money again? Something about inflation. It's, yeah. Like all of all of these questions that like I, I I find myself asking to friends who are in finance, and they have good answers to them, and I'm like, okay, I'm just about keeping up, and it it, it, it just it gets pretty confusing pretty quickly. Yeah. It yeah. does. And then even if you dig a bit deeper, if you ask a second or third question, it'll often turn out that those people don't really understand it. There's, there's this kind of surface level explanation. But then if you go like a couple of whys deep, okay, well, why do we have inflation? Why is it deep? Why? And then it kind of unravels quite quickly. And it turns out that there kind of is no answer or it's just, well, we've sort of ended up here somehow. Mm. But it's a very scarily small proportion of people, I think, who actually have any idea what's going on. And yet, if you turn on the radio, which is generally a good idea not to do, but if you do, then there's always like people giving their opinions about what's going to happen and explaining what just has, has happened. But most of it's just like astrology, I think. It's just mm. like the markets went up yesterday. Why? Well, you, people want opinions, but no one knows. <laughs> it's just like, it's just weird. Mm. Okay. Some, some people might say, well, fine. I know how to use a computer, but I don't need to understand how a computer works. Mm -hmm. I know how to use money. I know how to make money. I know how to, how to spend money. Do I really need to understand how it actually works and how it gets created and stuff like that? I think uh, you probably need to, for, for what I cover in the book, you probably need to know like a good 70%, I'd say. Some of it is kind of just for fun. Like it's kind of cool to know that banks just create money out of thin, thin air. So if you go and get a bank loan, there's no concept of like, oh, we'll just pop in, into the back and see if we've got any money spare. They will literally create it out of nothing. That money never existed before and they created it to give it to you. That's kind of cool. It's weird. Um, but you don't need to know that. 
but then there are plenty of things that you do need to know so like understanding understanding things like the national debt and inflation and all this sort of stuff is really important because it gives you clues about what the future is going to be like and if you're going to make the right decisions about your money, it's helpful to know or at least some kind of clue about the path that the future is going to take. So if, for example, we are going to end up having lots of inflation. So the, at the moment, time of recording this, there's loads of inflation. For a long time, we were being told it's just transitory. It's just, it's just a thing. It's a COVID. It's going to pass. And now that seems like it's not going to be the case. And my contention is it's going to continue to be a lot higher than we think it, think it should be for quite a long time. Well, that's really helpful to know because you can then make the, the right decisions about the investments you make and how you approach your finances with that in mind. But the thing about understanding the actual principles behind it and why that's the case is then you don't have to take anyone's word for it. Because like I said earlier, everyone's got an opinion. So if you, you, you kind of you listen, you speak to one person, they'll say, oh, well, this is going to happen. Another person, well, that's going to happen. They're both eminently qualified economists. Sometimes they've got two people with Nobel Prizes, both saying the exact opposite of each other. Who do you believe? Yeah. The great thing about actually understanding at a grassroots level is you don't. You then don't have to take anyone's word for it. You can come to your own view. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think if I if I think to you know people people I know like my my mum for example, who will move heaven and earth to try and save a few quid at tesco and make sure that she'll she'll like call me back when i've i've driven off to tesco because i haven't taken the club card keychain <laughs> with me to grab the coupon thingy and yet for the big financial decisions like getting a mortgage uh she would have no idea what the word interest rate even means and what a mortgage even is yeah and would take the word of like one of our uncles who maybe has a couple of properties and to, who would say that oh you know buying a property in london is what everyone should do and she'd be like right guys you should buy a property in london and those are huge financial decisions that have enormous repercussions for someone's entire life yeah uh and i think for a lot of people not understanding what is actually going on means that at best you make an uninformed decision about these enormously big things and at worst, you make a terrible decision about these enormously big things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's almost too too intimidating and too scary to think about. And so you do just end up taking someone else's word for, for it because it's easier. But people are just weird about money in general. So like, there are plenty of people, you've got plenty of multi-multi-millionaires who will always drive back to collect the club card because it's a principle of a thing or they've just got these kind of weird beliefs about it. But at a kind of a bigger structural level, yeah, it really helps to actually understand. It's not, and it's not that hard. Even people, people, it's kind of made to be hard and it's made to be boring and complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Mm. Okay, nice. So let's get started. Um, the price of money, how to prosper in a financial world that's rigged, that's rigged against you. I guess, firstly, what is money? And like, where do we, where do we start this whole story? Money is, I've called it a fiction because it's something that we've collectively agreed is a thing. So like money, money is whatever we say it is. So anything, anything can be money throughout history, all kinds of different things have been money. Shells have been money, like sticks with like notches carved in them have been money. Anything can be money. It's just something that kind of stands between transactions that we're making because it makes things easier. So we, we use the pound in this country. The dollar is like the, the global currency. Well, why are they the thing? They, they, they just are because everyone agrees. And it's great if everyone agrees on something because it means that you can like go out and buy pretty much anything you want when you've kind of both, you've got an established unit to use. But it doesn't, it, but money in itself doesn't have any value. Like through a lot of history, 
money itself had value. So you have like gold coins. So the gold in the coin would be valuable. Um, or you'd be able to like the first banknotes, you could go and actually hand that banknote in at the Bank of England and get a set amount of gold in return. So the money itself would have value. But for the and there's been times in history when that's been stretched. But now money just is money is money because we say it is. And money is extremely useful because if you didn't have it, then it would be a nightmare to get anything done. Like how would you, if you wanted to go and get your hair cut, you couldn't just give them money. You'd have to find something that they wanted and go mm. and give it to them. And the whole thing would be a nightmare. But I think a kind of a pro, it's really useful to keep in mind that money is effectively just something that we are kind of a collective, very useful illusion because then when things get weird, which they do when you start going deeper into money, it kind of helps you kind of realize why that's the case. And, and it breaks some of the illusions that we have around like the pound or the dollar having a fixed value because they don't. Hmm. Yeah. When I, when I was getting into all the crypto stuff, I, I started reading into some of this and, you know, the 1970s gold standard and how money was pegged to gold, but then it became not pegged to gold. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, uh, essentially the, the reason we, believe in the US dollar is because we believe in the US government. Yeah. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that for people who might mm. not be familiar with that side of the story. That's a really big deal. So they so we, they've had like various things various kind of versions of this thing called the gold standard in the past. But effectively it's where like every where currency you started to have like initially gold was the currency. I yeah, coins made of gold. And then you have other currencies, but those currencies are pegged to a particular amount of gold so the but first of all it was silver so like the pound has its name because it was a pound weight of silver um but then over time that's kind of changed and then at times of war you kind of suspend all that and go well actually we need to get a load of money so forget that but then it always comes back to being backed by something again but then it was the so 1971 where it was the first time that in temporarily this is only meant to be temporary the 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 us dollar was no longer worth a specific amount of gold it was just worth whatever it has value because we say it is and this was meant this was on a temporary basis over 50 years ago and that's a big deal because when you have a currency that is linked notionally to an amount of gold then it puts a constraint on how much of it can be created so that there is only so much gold in the world there's only so much of it you can pull out of the ground every yeah. year and then it gets progressively harder to pull it out of the ground because you kind of used up all the easy stuff so there's only so much extra money that can be created. When that's done away with, then, well, what is, what's stopping you if, if I'm just going and like printing a few extra billion? Nothing at all. Hmm. And so the result of that, if you go and look at the total money supply of the US or the UK or pretty much anywhere else, you'll sort of see a line that's completely flat, that pretty much the whole way through history. Then you get to the 70s and it goes like that. And it just hmm. goes up like a like hockey stick pattern. And that's because so much extra money has been created in the last 50 years. And the magnitude of it is just shocking i'd encourage anyone to go and look at a chart on it just because it's just bonkers and it make, kind of makes you realize okay for the last 50 years it feels normal to us because it's the only time we've ever known but historically it's completely abnormal and it's not going to last forever it can't last forever uh so apparently there's this quote from henry ford uh if people understood how our money and banking system worked there'd be a revolution before tomorrow morning mm -hmm. what's what's going on there so he, he said that, bear in mind, before a lot of the craziness that's happened recently. But we've already kind of touched on a couple of the key the key points. So like banks can just create money. 
So you and I have to work for money. Um, we try and arrange our lives so we can get as much money as we can. We're working as little as we can, but we have to essentially work. Banks can just create it out of nothing and it happens in front of you. And that's just, that's nuts that some some entities have the special privilege to just create money. Yeah, how does that work? Why, why can't my business just create money? Because <laughs> <laughs> that would be illegal. Um, but, okay, and, yeah. but it's and, all right but, for Barclays to do but it. It's okay for, for them to do it because it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a whole strange complex Thing, but basically, a banking license is literally a license to print money, and so it allows you to to just say, "Yep, I will." I will you want to borrow this money? You want to borrow a thousand pounds? So I will. I'll type a thousand pounds into your account, and there's a kind of a counter entry where it's sort of that you owe it to them, but it's kind of there. It's an asset. It's a liability. It's it's but it's it's not it's nonsense. But they but they create money that didn't exist before, and when you repay that loan, the money ceases to exist. So that's weird. And and then the fact that the states can just create money as well. So we saw an ex- talking about 2020, where the 450 billion that was needed to fight COVID was created. The Bank of England created it mm. and gave it to the government to spend. And so it's it's just absolutely nuts. And then if I think if most people realised this, you would get to that whole thing of well, hang on a minute, like how how is it that I'm having to work so hard and or um, yet money can other people can just create money and the thing about it is that when money is created it's the people who are closest to the money creation who tend to see the biggest benefit of it and so then it'll pass its way through the system and eventually by the time it gets to your ordinary person or someone else has already profited from it and inflation means that by the time it gets to you it'll probably probably be worth less anyway and inflation is a whole other type of weirdness that we should talk about yeah okay so is this what you mean by a, fin- a financial world that's rigged against you? There's one, yes, but there is one other particular way in which it's been rigged against most people recently, which is um, when you, inflation is something that now everyone's very aware of. But for a long time, no one really thought about inflation much because it was like ticking along at a couple of percent a year. But when you when something happens for a couple of percent a year for a lot of years, it compounds into something that's quite a lot. So the pound has lost half its value in the last twenty years. So that's kind of weird. So if you had, so if you had a, a ten pound note and you lost, lost it twenty years ago, found it today, it would buy you half as much stuff hmm. as it did twenty years ago. That wouldn't be so much of a problem if you could put that money into the bank and earn an amount of interest. That compensated for that and more, yeah. Because you'd still be coming out ahead. That for most of history, that's been the case. The rate of interest has been higher than the rate of inflation. But since two thousand and nine, that's not been the case. So at the moment, people are feeling pretty good about the fact that you can get nearly four percent in an instant access bank account. That sounds pretty good because we can remember when it was nothing. Mm-hmm. But inflation is eight percent, so you're actually losing even more than you were before. So the way that the financial system is rigged against you is that the money that you have is losing money every year. It's costing you more to buy the the things that you need. And by saving money, there's nothing you can do about it. Because even if you save money, your savings are guaranteed to be losing value. But if you've got debt, then you see the other side of that equation. And that's actually quite a good thing. Mm, What do you mean? So if you have... um, if you borrowed um, £100 a hundred years ago, 
No, in fact, if you borrowed twenty pounds a hundred years ago, that would have been enough for you to pay your rent for a month and go and go out for dinner with the change. And so, like, so let's say you, you borrowed it from someone a hundred years ago. You come forward to today, and you and your very elderly friend, <laughs> so your friend, your friend, friend says, "Actually, can I have that twenty pounds back now?" Yeah, sure. Like, hand over twenty pounds. You barely even notice it's gone. Yeah. So the the value of your debt has been eroded over time. So if you even if you never actually pay off a penny of it, the amount of pounds that you owe remains the same. Then yep. the actual amount that you can, the actual buying power is always being eroded. And so if you have a mortgage, for example, and you ha- and you've got a mortgage now, then 10 years later, let's say I've got a mortgage for 200k, 10 years later, that 200k would be quote, worth less. Yeah. But I would still have to only pay off 200k. Correct. So based on, so yeah, like it's roughly half in the last 20 years. So you took out, you borrowed it 20 years ago. Today, you owe the same number of pounds. But if your, if your value of your asset has increased in line with inflation, if your income has increased in line with inflation, then it's so much easier. It's, it's twice as easy for you to pay back mm. that mortgage as it was when you took it out. And so is that why interest rates on mortgages are a thing in that the bank is like, hang on, this money, this mortgage is, go- is going to be worth less X number of years from now. Therefore, we need to, we as the borrower need to pay an ongoing fee, I guess, to give the bank something or how, how does that work? Not really, because remember, the banks kind of create the money. So, ah, so, so, yeah. so, in, there are there are some there are in some. It depends on how things are funded. You can have some situations where someone needs to see a return on it. But essentially, like the the reason that we have, um, yeah, the reason we have interest rates is because then is it's putting a price on money, and it goes into a whole load of technical stuff that we don't need to get into today. But when when interest rates are low, you're more likely to borrow money because it's cheaper. And when interest rates are high, you're less likely to do it because it's costing you more. Um, which, and this is this is how the government kind of controls the the money supply by setting interest rates to make to make people more minded to borrow and spend versus less. So, if the government decrees that hey, interest rates are now zero percent, what's what's going to happen? Everyone's going to go out and borrow more money. Oh, because they can borrow the money effectively for free. Yeah. Which, which is what happened for a long time. So yeah. like we had zero rates for ages. And that's why it's, well, it's one of the big reasons why um, the prices of property, stock market, any, anything you can think of went up because people could, people could borrow money to go and buy assets. Okay. And because of supply and demand, if people are buying the things, the price of the thing is going to go up. Yeah, exactly. And so when people have been saying, oh, for the last 10 years, property has been going up and up and up and up. It's be- partly because it's actually been so easy to get a mortgage. Yeah, everything has been going up because money's been kind of effectively free and then now that's not the case and so that's going to sort of massively change the dynamic but mm. it's still it's it's kind of it's still the the case that because you've always got that this this inflation is such a core part of everything because there's no like you you probably know that the bank of england's target is two percent inflation a year same in the u.s um there's no reason for that to be the case. It's just they've decided that that's what it should be. But that means that you that that's 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 setting a floor on it. So if it if, so if it's above it as it is now, then it's like, oh well, we should really start trying to do something about this. But if it's below, then it's panic stations. We need to print a load of money, do whatever we can to get it back to the two percent. So you've always got inflation of effectively at least two percent over the long term, which is making everyone poorer. So that's yeah. kind of what I mean by the system being rigged against you. And why why do they want two percent rather than zero percent or minus two percent? It's set at two percent 
for no like mathematical reason. It was just it was a suggestion that someone made once. They ended up getting taken on. But the the theory of it is that deflation is bad. So if things are going to get cheap, if you know things are going to get cheaper in the future, it's not. It's I, I wouldn't spend any money. Correct. Yeah. If I knew that a, a sale is coming six months from now, yeah, I would wait until well six months from now to buy the next iPhone or whatever the thing yeah. might be. So that's the, that's the theory. And so the idea is that's bad. So if you set it at two percent, even if you undershoot a bit, you still you still above zero. So so that's good. Okay. But I personally don't buy this at all because like. Think of your laptop. Like Laptops are always getting cheaper. You know if you wait another six months, you'll always be able to get something better for the same money. But you do it anyway because you want the thing. Mm. And if you want to get your groceries this week, you still go out and buy them because you need to eat this week. Yeah. So I'm not convinced by this whole this whole thing about like deflation being bad. But now we've reached a point, which I think is a really important point, where deflation, it would be disastrous for the financial system because – Everyone, especially the government, has so much debt. So if you ended up, you kind of, the idea is if you have inflation, then, and you've got a fixed amount of debt and you have inflation, then everything grows relative to the debt. So everything that you could, everything that gets produced is worth more, the debt stays the same, all good. If you have um, deflation, then you've got the opposite of that. So the debt is effectively growing as, as a proportion of everything else, which would be a disaster. We, what we have now is a situation where, every, where the government has got about um, two and a half trillion pounds worth of debt. It's 100% of GDP. Um, and so if they, they can't have deflation because that means that that debt is growing and growing and growing as a proportion. They need to have inflation because that's the only way to stop the debt from growing. They have to borrow more money every year. They've borrowed money in every year, except that they've bo- they borrowed more than they've uh, brought in. And something like more every year but six out of the last 50. Hmm. And so there's, just, there's nothing you can do about it. And so the, the amount that's borrowed, it just goes up every single year. So the only thing that you can do to stop that getting completely out of control is to either grow the economy with economic economic growth which isn't happening because productivity is rubbish or um actually like just inflate the cost of everything this episode is very kindly brought to you by huel i've been using huel i've been a paying customer of huel since 2017 since my fifth year of medical school when i first discovered it and basically what it is if you haven't heard of it is that it is a meal in a shake it's got the perfect balance of carbs and fiber and proteins and fat and it contains 26 different vitamins and minerals all you do is add water or milk to the powder usually i use water you can shake it up or you can blend it i prefer to blend and then it becomes a fantastic option if you're like me and you're kind of busy and so you don't really have time for breakfast or lunch my favorite version is the huel black edition it's absolutely sick for 400 calories, 40 grams of protein for 400 calories. I'm trying to get hench and it's actually pretty hard to find something that has such a high protein content for such a low calorie trade-off. And so I really like using the Huel Black Edition to start my mornings off. It's vegan, it's gluten-free, it's lactose-free. The Black Edition is available in nine flavors. My favorite is salted caramel. And I wouldn't recommend having every single meal Huel because that gets a bit annoying after a while, but it's absolutely fantastic. It's like one of the meals of the day, especially if you're busy and you're going to kind of default to something unhealthy otherwise. It's also very affordable, so it actually works out to £1.68 per meal for a 400 calorie meal, which is just incredible value and actually way cheaper than other generic protein shakes on the market. And it saves a bunch of time because it's so quick and easy to make. And so it's particularly exciting that they're sponsoring the podcast. And actually, we had the founder of Huel, Julian Hearn, who was on the very first season of the podcast. That was a sick episode that got so many rave reviews as well. 
Anyway, if you are interested in trying out Huel, then head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive. And if you use that URL, A, it really helps me out. But B, you also get a free t-shirt and also a free shaker that comes with your order. So go to huel.com forward slash deep dive. That'll also be linked down in the video description or the show notes. And thank you so much, Huel, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been? X weeks or X months further down the line. Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your Trading212 account. You can use Apple Pay, like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your Trading212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put £20,000 in every year, up to £20,000, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you want to sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. Also, very excitingly, there's a new feature that they've added to the app, which is a daily interest on your uninvested cash. These interest rates may go up or down over time as the economic environment changes, but the cool thing is that you get paid out every single day if you're into that sort of thing. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store and if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much Trading212 for sponsoring this episode. Why does the government need to borrow money? Can't they just press a button and print the extra 500 billion that they need like they did in COVID? Um, kind of, yeah. Um, they could, but um, they the, the risk is runaway inflation, which is kind of what we've got, we've got now. So the, 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 one of the big reasons that we've got so much inflation right now is that so much money was created, printed um, when we had COVID. Because they did just have to go and like they had to they had to kind of print some amount of money. Like it was impossible to know what the right amount was. But I think they kind of went they ended up going over the top. So everyone, everyone kind of not everyone, but a large proportion of people came out of COVID better than they went better off than they went in hmm. because of all this sort of money that was sort of created and dished out. So what that so that then creates that everyone then goes and tries to spend all that money. Yeah. There's no extra supply of anything, so supply and demand, you end up getting inflation. So they could go. Um, so you can't just go absolutely nuts and go, everyone have whatever you want because you're not creating anything extra, anything new in the real world. So there's always there's only so much stuff that's being produced. Yep. Yeah, because there, there were shortages for like PlayStations and stuff back in the day, chip shortages and everything. So yeah. there's a fixed supply. Everyone wants a PS5 mm -hmm. <laughs> and therefore the price goes up and up and up. The black market starts to happen. People start reselling it on eBay. And that you're saying that that phenomenon plays out across everything that anyone wants to buy. <laughs> and yeah. therefore the price of everything goes up. Exactly. And yeah. we call that inflation. Yes. Yeah, so if you had um, like government click their fingers and every single person wakes up with an extra million pounds in their bank account. So you go, fantastic. I can go buy whatever I want. But 
creating the extra money hasn't created any extra stuff. So everyone rushes out to spend their extra million pounds and goes and tries to buy everything. So what happens? The price of everything has to correct upwards so to, to maintain that scarcity. Okay, interesting. So someone listening to this might say, why does the price have to go up? Isn't, isn't it just the evil shopkeeper that's deciding to price gouge because everyone's suddenly got a million quid? It doesn't cost them any more to produce the product. So why are they putting the price up? They don't have to, but price is a price is a signal that tells markets what to do. It's it's if you you could just keep the prices as they are, but then you'd run out of everything. And so, like, how do you manage demand? If there's more, if there's if there's only a finite amount of stuff that can be produced, then how do you how do you kind of encourage people to produce more of it? And how do you allocate between what you should be producing? You you but price is the signal. So if everybody suddenly wants to go and buy, and buy grapes for whatever reason, the the price the 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 price of them could, would go up because that's the way of controlling the supply of what you've got, and it's a signal to get more people to come into the market and produce grapes. It's like if you if you if you don't if you don't have prices, there's no way of doing that. So in my million pound example, there could also be a law saying you're not allowed to increase prices. Everything's the same as it was, but then you just run out of everything. So it doesn't really help. Hmm. There's there's still this kind of fundamental there there's sort of there's a fundamental scarcity. And you kind of need you kind of need money to be scarce as well. Because if you end up with abundant money and scarce resources, well that's inflation. <laughs> Damn. Okay. <laughs> um but th- there are some assets or some items that the government does say you are not allowed to increase the price of this yeah uh, like what's what's the deal with that that's just trying to that's basically trying to avoid ill effects of um of, of like you, if, if you have the if you have the price of of lots of items going up then it should kind of it annoys people but it doesn't matter if people can't get a ps5 then it's like it's not a big societal problem mm. but there are some but like if the price of a certain medication goes up then that's a really bad thing so they try to control for that and it's they kind of, they kind of have to do it but it doesn't really help because if the price of it did go up then in theory, that would encourage more people to come into the market to produce that thing. Yes. And you'd end up with with more. It's a bit like rent rent controls. I mean, I mean, so we can come, come to talking about property later. But with like, when rents are going up a lot, then people go, oh, well, the answer is rent controls. Tell these greedy landlords that they can't increase the rent. Hmm. That's sort of a solution. But that just but that doesn't encourage any more property to be produced to be created to be brought into the market it actually discourages it and it doesn't produce any more the reason that rents go up is because there's more supply than there there's more demand than there is supply so if you if you say well rent is now capped at this level then all the people who suddenly loads of people are willing to pay that level yeah but there's no way of allocating the housing that you've got so loads of people end up they don't have the option to pay more to get something they just have nothing okay so this is what you get in Sweden, where okay, where sorry, where, what's happening in Sweden? Sorry, in um, in um, Stockholm, I think it is. But they they have um, they have rent controls, and so there's only a certain you can only charge a, a certain amount, and so you, what what you end up with is it's like impossible to find somewhere to rent because there's just there is no there's no extra supply, and so you end up with like a black market of people doing sublets and stuff like that because there's just there's no way of finding anywhere so that that's a that's a property example, but then it's the same for it's the same for anything like you 
capping the price sort of solves a problem in the short term, but, but it doesn't really solve oh, it in okay. the longer term. So is it like, you know, people always complain about uh, Uber and their um, sort of cert, like charge thingy. Surge pricing. Yeah. Surge pricing. Yeah. What's what, what's the deal with that? Yeah. Same thing. So the idea with that is surge, surge pricing. It's a way. It's both a way of allocating the the, the demand that there is. So like you might look at that and go, oh, I'm just going to walk. It's not worth it. So that is a way of kind of like reducing the demand and allocating the limited supply of of cars that there is. Yeah. But it's also a signal to the market to to come and participate so i've spoken to uber drivers before who've said that they when they get a notification that the surge pricing is in effect they'll grab their keys and go out so that, that's pull more people into the market so the price is kind of annoying for you when you kind of see that notification you've got to pay more but it helps to sort out the market i feel like okay so people on the political left tend to be I, I think anti-free market anti-capitalism pro-government controls of stuff what's what would be their biggest i guess what's what's their most compelling argument um for rent control and, and things like that like what what would they say and by they i mean we <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i think it's tricky because i think we could all recognize it's very easy to recognize the problem. It's very hard to actually give a, a solution. And it's very, you can't, it's very easy to just kind of appeal to the market, argue, leave the market to its own devices and that'll sort it out. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Yeah. But even if it does, it can still cause a lot of pain either in the short term or permanently for, for certain groups of people. So it's very, so it's really easy to go, oh, you know, let, let rents increase because, you know, some people will be willing to pay it and those who can't will move out. But then you end up, you could end up with a situation where, um, nurses just can't afford to live in the whole of london mm. and that's not that's not good for anyone yeah so it's definitely not perfect to just say oh you know let the market do its thing for, yeah. for, for any of these things so but then what what you actually do about it is hard because normally when you start it's when you start making an in intervention you make an intervention with the best of intentions but then it will have some completely unintended consequence on something else. So then you'll have to go and make another intervention to fix mm. that. Yeah. And then another, another, another. And you said you end up in a situation where the government is trying to just like constantly patch things over yeah. and being and doing more and more. When really, to the greatest extent possible, I think you just kind of want to leave the economy to sort itself out. Because the economy is like it's an emergent thing of all of us as individuals doing whatever we want to do, freely transacting with whoever we want to. And so the signals that the economy is giving, it's always going to be better than like a few people in a Bank of England conference room going, oh, well, I think it should be this. Like that, the, the collective is always going to be smarter than a few individuals. So as far as possible, you want to kind of leave things to their own devices, but you just can't do that fully. Mm. And I guess the issue with leaving things to their own devices is that then the people like nurses who are absolute core members of keeping a society functioning but are not economically incentivized to do so mm -hmm. they get screwed over because yep. i guess something like the nhs is in almost inherently and I'm, I'm thinking out loud here and so please correct me if i'm wrong is is almost inherently an anti-economic thing where the government is like 
screw the prices, we are going to fund everything, which is amazing. And it's just yeah. fantastic. But it does mean that, okay, okay, cool, state-funded healthcare system. Where is that money going to come from? The government could just keep printing more and more of it, but then you'll have inflation and then the price of everything goes up and people complain. Alternatively, the government could borrow the money from somewhere, in which case they have to pay it back at some point. Alternatively, the government could just, quote, raise taxes on the rich, mm-hmm. in which case, why, why, why can't we just raise taxes on the rich? Like, you know, get the, you know, 80% tax rate, like get these rich people, they've got enough money anyway. Landlords like me and you have too much money on our hands. Mm-hmm. We should, we should raise taxes on the rich. Like what's, what would be the counter to that view? I think you, the, the, the counter, the, the counter that you always see from people who don't like that idea is, oh, they'll just leave. Mm. Uh, I'm not convinced. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure like on the margin, some of them will, but you'll call, you'll, pe- people live in a place for a reason that's not just tax driven and yeah. it's very easy to say oh well i just go and live in portugal or something but most people probably wouldn't so i think you get i think you can but you do get to a point where um there is sort of there is only so much tax you can you can collect before people start going well actually i'm just not going to bother earning anymore because it's not worth it to me mm. and you can argue about where that threshold is but there is a threshold where you just go, this isn't worth, just isn't worth it anymore. And that's not a good thing because if you assume that people are creating economic value for people by whatever they do, then you want them to be doing more of it and not doing less of it. So you could end up jacking the tax rate right up. It just kind of puts everyone off doing anything. So you end up not really collecting any extra tax and a load of things don't get created. But where is that level? Who knows? And I think, and I think a very fair counter would be well there are plenty of people who are not earning money through their hard work they're earning it because they've got a whole load of assets and maybe they've got those assets because they were passed down to them maybe they've got those assets because of something that they did 20 years ago and then because of zero interest rates and everything else the value of those assets has gone up and so those people are not productively doing anything Mm. so tax them and I think that having a having a wealth tax is something that always kind of gets thrown out as being oh, too hard and blah, blah, blah. But at some point, it's probably going to have to be the answer because you do, you do have like, like inequality is just like absolutely because of what happened in 2008, which we could talk about a bit if it's interesting. You, you've got because of what's happened with money inequality has absolutely exploded. And so if you do end up with this concentration of wealth for a small number of people, then you have to somehow sort of tax that small number of people. You have to. But there is still a limit. There is still there is still no kind of infinite amount of money that you can just tax away from people so everyone can have everything that they want. There's still economics is about scarcity effectively. And man how you manage the scarce resources you've got. Hmm. Okay, so on this, like just following this thread on the wealth tax, the idea would be that you tax people not as a percentage of their income, but as a percentage of their overall wealth. Yeah. Is that is that sort of what the US does with property taxes and things? Property tax is closer to it. So there's um there's a really um popular well, popular popular among certain economists um called uh, land value tax so which is a bit like a, a wealth tax but specific to land so you 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 basically tax 
the the owners of land um because you know someone has to to own the land you can't just pick the you can't just pick your land off and land up and take it off to another country yeah. so it's quite easy to do and there 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 are basically lots of very good economic reasons why this is a good thing why this is a good thing to do um but it's probably not going to happen because um many very very powerful and influential people including most of the house of lords are big landowners so <laughs> it's not it's not likely to happen but that would be that would be one form of wealth tax another form would be you know you kind of have to sort of send in the value of all your of all your bank accounts all your ices your stocks and shares accounts all of that you have to sort of send it in every year and then you get taxed a percentage of that I'm not mm. saying it's practically easy. It's not. And I'm, I'm not necessarily here saying advocating it and saying this is the solution. I don't go there in the book. But while we're having the conversation, I think we have to recognise that there is that inequality is going is going to reach a point where something like that has to happen. Mm. Because if you think about it, taxing income, tax is just so weird because you tax things that you don't want people to do, like smoking. Sure. You also tax things like working. Which yeah. you kind of do want people to do, yeah. And because ta- because you kind of, in a way to kind of go, go and get more taxes, you kind of get nervous about the well. You know, there's if you even if you tax the hell out of the richest one percent, that still only gets you a certain amount. So everyone else has to pay more as well. So everyone ends up paying more more tax. You end up with like quite a lot of people who you think don't even think of as high earners, like teachers, being pulled into the like the forty percent higher bracket. And so everyone's taxes go up, but there is only so much that you can ha- so much you can get. So at some point you have to go. Well, you have, you have to find another way of doing this, or you have to say the government has to say actually, well, we're not going to provide all the services that we're going to, and so yeah, and then you get the whole like, own. well, the the government's trying to destroy the NHS. They just wanted to be privatized, yeah. kind of narrative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, what, what, See, I told you interesting I, stuff. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Like whenever I I start even vaguely thinking about it or talking to anyone about sort of economic policy and things. I just kind of think, man, like running a country must be so hard because <laughs> yeah. there's there's no easy answer to any of this stuff. No. And I guess something, even something like the wealth tax, it's like, yeah, just the way that our government is set up means that it just so happens that the House of Lords, Lords has, a lot of, has a lot of land. And so it would be pretty hard to pass a wealth tax or a land tax law against them. Mm-hmm. And like you would think that well, the House of Lords is there as like a check and balance against the government or something like that. But when the incentives are so aligned in favor of, I want to hold on to my money, yeah. how do you get anything done? Yeah. <laughs> Outside of, I don't know, a military coup and get rid of them and stuff, which might be what some people are advocating for. Yeah, exactly. And a key a key part of something like a land tax is supposed to be that you that replaces all other taxes. So if you tax that, then you don't have to tax people's earnings, which kind of makes sense. I think they, the quite right concern that a lot of people would have is that they'd actually just add that on top. <laughs> so as well as taxing you on on your on your earnings and your savings and your VAT and this and that and the other, you'd also tax something else, which I think is a reasonable objection. But because but again, because it comes back to the debt. So much debt has been built up over the last 50 years that just covering the cost of the interest on that debt is huge, especially now interest rates have gone up a bit, well, quite a lot. So we now spend as much on just paying the interest on the debt as we do on defence. And soon we'll be paying as much on the interest on the debt as we do on education. So if the debt keeps growing that a higher and higher proportion of everything of all the tax revenue you get yeah. has to go to just paying your debt. 
Okay, I, I still don't quite understand why the government has to borrow money. Because if the government, let's say, if the UK government borrows money from the US, surely to people in the UK, that is just the equivalent of printing more money because they don't realize where the money's come from. And because once the money's in the system, the price of everything goes up. Mm -hmm. So why is the government trying to borrow money at all from like, A, where does the government borrow money from? And then why do they borrow bother borrowing it rather than just printing it? Yeah, so they borrow money from... Um, all sorts of all sorts of places, including so like if pe people have um, bonds as an investment, bonds probably something got, most people have heard of, but I really think too much about what it is. But that's basically lending money to the government. Um, so lots of people have those in their pensions. Um, lots of people um, in other countries have those those as investments. Lots of countries have those. So like China is a massive owner of U.S. debt. And so you borrow from other countries, other individuals, things like that. Um, that's where it comes from. Um, as an alternative, you could just create it, but then you end up, you, you sort of have the, but then you have the inflation problem. Like you've, you have to, you, you've, and then inflation kind of ends up being a bit, being like a tax anyway. So basically you end, you end up ultimately paying one way or the other. But if you're, I, I get why you wouldn't have inflation if you're borrowing from people in the UK mm -hmm. as part of their pension funds or whatever. But if you're borrowing from, borrowing from China, where like that's essentially free money that's coming into the system somewhat, uh, somewhat without a link to the UK. Mm -hmm. So why is borrowing from China any different to pressing the print money button? Um, it's different because if you're borrowing money from another country, you're having to pay out interest ah. to the other country. Okay. Which you're then having to pay, so that's costing you. That that's costing. So some proportion of the taxes you collect go to paying them back. Okay. Whereas if you just printed it, you won't have to pay it back, and then sort of you end up with more money in circulation. Yeah, exactly. So so by borrowing money from China, you end up with some more money in circulation. But but by the fact but the fact that you have to pay it back means it's not as much as if you were to just print the money. Yeah, that's right. Essentially, there is no there's no kind of magical answer to the fact that there is only a that there is there's only a, there's a scarce amount of human effort human effort is kind of the the limiting factor and so when you have productivity improvements so like you have you have ai means that everyone can now do more with less well that's great that means that that's great productivity it means that now we can now produce more the same amount of people working the same amount of time can produce more um more stuff yeah which means which means you can then support a greater amount of money you kind of need a greater amount of money to represent that greater amount of stuff yeah, yeah. okay but they always have to be there has to be some kind of balance so if you you just you, you if you kind of went and like trebled the amount of money without growing the amount of stuff then that's where you have problems Okay, so this is why everyone cares about like country productivity, yeah, and stuff, yeah. Because if if uh, so, if hypothetically we could just wave a magic wand and magic up a house out of nowhere, mm -hmm. would that basically solve the housing crisis? I guess it would. I mean, the the reason that that productivity is important is because it's about it's about this limiting factor, like hum the amount of of stuff humans can create is is the limit so raising that limit is is a good thing it makes it it, it makes it easier for people to it means every, everyone can get what they want with less effort yeah which is what everyone ultimately wants so it's like when when the tractor gets invented in, invented suddenly it's people are less likely to starve yeah. because it's easier to make food yeah so similarly if you could wave a magic wand and create a house 
people will be less likely to be homeless because it's just easy to create houses. Yeah. And then you're capped by the amount of land you have physically on earth mm -hmm. rather than the amount of builders and property developers you have willing to build houses. Yeah. And so something like AI is effectively like a magic wand for certain industries. Unfortunately, it's not yet a magic wand for something like building a house. Mm -hmm. But a tractor would, would have been a magic wand for growing, growing and harvesting stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of, it's good news all around. And so if it means that you know if you use it in medicine and so doctors can now sort of like i don't know diagnose things more more quickly or spend more of their time doing the things that they really need to be doing rather than sort of messing around with things that they don't then that means that there, there's more output per hour worked for them and so that's what so that's that's what you ultimately want and that's and that's the only way to kind of the only way to kind of keep the party going and keep giving giving people more and more and more is to find ways of producing more. The shortcut to doing that is to create more money. If you yeah. if you if you if you if you print more money, then you and you dish it out to people and you give them everything they want today, then great. But really, you're just kind of borrowing from the future in a way. You're kind of you're papering over the fact that you, you're you're pretending everyone can have what they want, but in reality, they can't. Damn. I don't think I've ever quite understood that before. Because I guess like if, if I think of my business, it makes a lot of sense. I'm very keen on, for example, my team using AI for stuff. Because mm -hmm. if we can do twice the amount of work in half the time, yeah, suddenly it means we can produce more stuff. If we produce more stuff, it means we can sell more stuff, which means we make more money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if we make more money, it means that I get richer, but it also means we can then hire more people to do more things. Mm -hmm. And it's like this pursuit of more and more and more. And eventually, if we assume that the job of my business is to create videos and podcasts like this one that people can listen to that will help them build a life they love. Mm -hmm. Generally, everyone benefits when a particular business grows. Yeah. And so similarly, if you're running a hospital and suddenly your doctors and nurses and everything were twice as efficient or you had twice as, or, or, the, or the medication, well, I guess, was half the price because there was it was easy to wave a magic wand and produce it. Mm -hmm. Everyone benefits from yeah. the growth of the hospital business, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And that's the the wonderful thing about technology because if, if you can, if you can, like 3d print a house yeah. and so it's quicker and easier to do that if you can use ai in your job and so you now oh you can now get it done in half the time and spend the other half the time doing something else that's valuable or even just relax instead because that's a that's a valuable thing then that's great and so te technology is is amazing because it, it it allows you to do more with less and so but then you've got this kind of weird tension that that's that that's deflationary but because if you're kind of doing more with if you're doing more with less if, if everyone kind of gets their job done in half the time and then sits around then that's kind of deflationary because you you need less money but that's kind of a side point that yeah. maybe we don't need to go but we talked right about now. that deflationary is not inherently bad it's only bad if you have lots of debt absolutely and therefore the government <laughs> thinks it's really bad because they have a lot of debt that's it yeah so yeah you've kind of got this kind of perverse situation where like we've ended up like i've said say in the book that we're coming we're like 50 years into a financial experiment where it kind of it has to come to an end. You can't just keep growing debt forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. There comes a point where it's just it just doesn't work anymore. If you if you could if you could have a completely painless reset where everyone just kind of goes back to the beginning and starts again on a, on a different grounding, then you'd be kind of welcoming things getting cheaper. And because well, why not? Why wouldn't you? So what's stopping us from having a reset? <laughs> Historically, it's just it. When systems change, they sort of change messily, and it turns out to be not great for for anyone. So, like on 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 the side on the other side of 
for everyone who has borrowed money, there's a lender. And so if you suddenly go, actually, guys, you know what? We're just going to wipe out all debt. And this is something that used to happen quite a lot, like in the in, the, in biblical times, there were debt jubilees where every so many years, they just go and wipe out all the debt. Yeah. Um, and if, so if you did that, it would kind of be, well, in a way, great, but also you're basically ended up saying to all these people who loaned you money, sorry, you're out of luck. And so I don't, I don't know what the ramifications of it would be, but it would probably not be very pretty. It's also associated with um, changes of, of power. So if you end up like with the US kind of like not being the dominant country, um, the dollar underpinning everything anymore, and you ended up with China or somewhere else having that power instead, then it's probably going to be messy. So you kind of... At some point, you're going to end up with some kind of either a hard reset or a soft reset of the whole system. But no one knows what it's, when it's going to happen or what it's going to look like. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Shopify. Now, Shopify is great. We've been using Shopify for the last several years to power the e-commerce side of our business when selling our planners. And we're also using it to power the back end of the e-commerce section of a tech brand that we're in the process of building out. More details to come on that in a while. But Shopify is sick. It's basically an all-in-one commerce platform that you can use to sell pretty much anything online or in person or through social media platforms. And it's great. It's an all-in-one platform that lets you build and grow and manage every aspect of the process from literally zero to powering like billions of dollars of revenue. It's super easy to get started. You don't need to learn how to code. They've got a bunch of really like nicely designed templates that will make any e-commerce site just look absolutely sick. And they power more entrepreneurs than anyone else. So there are millions of businesses in the world across 175 countries that use Shopify to be able to sell stuff. And so if you're interested in potentially starting a business or growing a business, then I'd highly recommend using Shopify. Like I said, it's what we use to sell our stuff on the internet. It's amazing. And even companies like Gymshark that are doing like 1 billion plus dollars in revenue are being powered by Shopify. So like you know that you have a lot of room to grow on the platform. Anyway, if you want to give it a go and sign up for a totally free trial to see if you like it, then head over to shopify.com forward slash deep dive and that URL will be linked down in the video description and also in the show notes. And thank you so much Shopify for sponsoring this episode. So is the stuff that we've talked about so far basically a reasonable a, a reasonable starting point as to why the financial system is rigged against you and me and the people listening to this podcast? So I think if we can kind of, if we say like the core the core thing that is important to understand and why you could say it's rigged against you is this point about um, the rate of inflation being higher than the rate of interest. So if you if you are guaranteed to lose buying power by saving money, then that's not good. And so that I think that that's that's probably the most important thing to understand. So like, okay, well it's that way. It's been that way for fifteen years. Why is it going to continue being that way? Well, that's because of what we've just been talking about. So you have to, you can't have interest rates being too high because everyone's got so much debt. So if you if you jacked interest rates up to fifteen percent, then it would bankrupt everyone, including the government. So the government's own borrowing costs have gone up so much because of the rises in interest rates we've had even over the last year. If they went up too much further, then you end up with basically all your tax revenue goes to paying back the debt, and there's none left over for anything else. So you can't have interest rates going too high, but you also need to have a pretty decent amount of inflation because. There's actually lots of good reasons why you'd have inflation anyway to do with globalization. But even if you put that aside, well, why would the government want there to be inflation? Well, because that's how they effectively shrink the value of their ever-growing debt pile. Mm. And so you, the, they, they don't want it to be as high as it is now because it gets every, makes everyone very unhappy. But if you could sort of have like 4 or 5% inflation forever, they, that, or for, for at least like the next 5, 10 years, I think they'd be probably be quite happy with that. So that's why 
I believe that we've kind of come out of this era of very low interest rates, very low inflation, and going into an era of having um, much higher higher inflation, higher interest rates, but crucially, the rate of inflation is higher than the rate of interest. Mm. And it is the government who pulls the lever on the interest rate. So and for, then inflation is a thing that just happens. Yeah. And it's the it's the the Bank of England that supposedly independently sets um interest rates. But so, supposedly? <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's te- it's it's a branch it's a branch of it's a branch of government. It technically has independence for the purposes of setting rates, but if you just look at human incentives, I just don't believe it mm. at all. And it's like in theory they they can decide how much to borrow and they just happened to dis- or and, and how much to and how much money to print so the bank of england can decide how much money it wants to print it in 2020 it just so happened to decide to print the exact amount that the government needed to cover its own spending plans when it needed to borrow money for covid so i'm not convinced by that independence oh interesting okay cool so at this point we agree that we've, we've understood a bit about money we agree that the financial system is rigged against us um in the book, you talk about a few different principles as to how normal people can make money work for them yep. and can prosper in this potentially, well, well, in this very rigged financial system. Yep. So I wonder if we can go go through some of those. Okay. Um, and so principle, principle number one, forget about growing your wealth with savings. Yes. What, what does that mean? So it's not saying don't save. So you need to have an emergency fund. That's cash. You, If you're saving up for something like a house deposit, then you need to have that as savings, not expose it to the markets where anything could happen. So I'm not saying don't save. And of course, you have to save because that's the precursor to investing. You have to save money before you can invest it. But saving, you can't just save because as we've just covered, you're, you're, even if you're, you've, got, you've got your money in the best possible bank account that's paying you the biggest amount of interest, you're still earning less than the rate of inflation. So you're losing buying power. So it's better to it's better to save than not to save, but you then need to you need to go and do something with it because it's it's crazy. It should be the case that you you can just save your money and you'll you'll earn a return on it. So without taking any kind of crazy risks, you end up sort of doing quite well. But unfortunately that's not the case. And that's not the case because the rate of interest is lower than the rate of inflation. Yeah. But if it, if it were identical to the rate of inflation, then we'd all be happy. We'd be happier. If it was higher, then that'd be even better. Yeah. So, so but then, if it's higher, the government has to pay more off in interest rates to their, all the debt that they've got, and the government has all this debt, and therefore the government's unhappy. Yes. And also anyone who's ever borrowed money is unhappy because the mortgage rates are going up. And then maybe they can't afford the mortgage, and the house gets repossessed. So, so some people are happy and are, are, unha- are unhappy regardless of yeah. which side of this interest inflation rate kind of equation we're on. Pretty much, yeah. What mistakes do people make when it comes to saving? Um, I think for kind of let's say people of thirty and younger, they probably kind of got a more realistic idea of savings because they've grown up with until the last couple of years your savings just don't do anything for you. You can see it's like literally pretty like 0.1%. And so you kind of know that. I think for the older generation, it, because for most of history, you have been reward, rewarded for saving because the, all of this stuff is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, you, they're probably more likely to kind of keep on like using cash ices and things like that and just kind of keeping a lot in cash because they see it seems like that 
well, you know, it's a good thing to do, but that's because they're not, they're just kind of, they're not factoring in inflation. So like it's called, like, in, like you'll have heard, it's another economic term, like real terms. So, so if something's in real terms, it's like you have to, you deduct the effect of inflation. So if, like, if you look, so if you look at it, you're, the amount, great, I'm making 3% in my bank account. That's wonderful. But then if you look at it in real terms, after deducting inflation, it could be minus 4%. So that's kind of a mistake that people make, uh, kind, of, kind of a general level. But pe- people... It's hard to say what is a mistake because everyone, like we said at the very beginning, everyone's weird about money. And like, you can, like, there are lots of people who are very wealthy who keep loads of money in cash. And you could say, well, that's a mistake because if you were investing this, then you'd be able to do even better. But if it makes you feel comfortable and mm. relaxed and happy, then it's not a mistake, is it? Yeah, that was one of my biggest takeaways from Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money, around how what is rational is not always what is reasonable. Mm. And previously, I used to say that like, oh, I would never pay off a mortgage because I can get a better return in the S&P, which may be true and may be rational. But paying off a mortgage helps me sleep at night. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you know, what am I really optimizing for here? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a really good episode of, um, I think it was a free economics podcast, where there's like some research about like what economists think that we should be doing, about make decisions we should be making about money, things like savings and paying off mortgages. And the, the economists getting very upset because it's not what people actually do in reality. Yeah. So well, what's the point of saying what people should do if people actually feel completely differently? Um, do you have any rules or principles that are helpful um, for you and for maybe people that you would advise uh, around saving money each month? Um, I think it's very personal. Um, something that I really believe in is um, intentional spending. So obviously, you can. Some people can be in situations where you really need to save the absolute maximum you possibly can for some possible reason. But I think even if you're not in that situation, then you don't have to like deny yourself everything. But you, it's very easy to fall into just spending money for the sake of it, barely even noticing it. So you're you're doing it to impress someone you're doing it because you thought it would you, you kind of you it did make you happy once but now it doesn't or you think you don't really think about it so it's very easy to just kind of spend money without kind of thinking about what makes you happy so i'm a big proponent of um intentional spending so just so spend money on whatever makes you happy and just be conscious of what you're spending so rather than, so obviously there can be situations where having a budget is helpful but Rather than having a budget, I think it can be a good idea to just write down everything that you spent. So don't don't give yourself a limit, but just every but the rule is every time you spend money, you have to write it down, and you have to physically like write it down. I can do it in your notes app or whatever, but just don't. Uh, if you bank, if you go, oh, I can go into my bank and see that. That's different. You need to actually be doing it because then in the moment, it's kind of making you think, huh? Do I really want to do this? Do will I want to write this down in two minutes' time? So it's quite a good way of kind of making making yourself question every spending decision you make mm. without going into budgeting, which I think can be can be really useful, but it can also be too rigid. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, you know, I've had, a, I've had a bunch of experience with tracking calories and macros yeah. to try and get gains. And even just when I write down how much protein I'm taking in, I'm like, oh, this is radically different to sort of just having a mental model of, of like a guesstimate of how much protein I'm taking in. Yeah, which is radically different to not thinking about it at all. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. And if you're and if you're if you're on a cut and you're trying to to cut calories, and just just knowing you have to track it, you're just like, like oh, am I going to feel good about myself if I have to go and put this into my app in, in five minutes time? Mm. It means you're less likely to do it. 
Yeah, it's that thing around, um, you know, there was that study that the some like weight loss experiment where half the group did nothing and the other half of the group just weighed themselves every day. And the yeah. group that weighed themselves every day just like lost lost weight by default. Just because being aware of a number, even if you take no active action to reduce that number, you know, awareness is the first step. And then exactly. you subconsciously start changing your behavior. Yeah, it's so true. And so I bet if you if you were writing, I bet if you just like wrote down your word count every day, then yeah. then it, the same the, the same thing would apply. <laughs> <It> really helps. <laughs> okay, nice. Um, principle number two, you say, is take on debt responsibly. What do you mean by that? Um, some people might be thinking all debt is bad. Yeah, debt is a terrible thing. You want to be debt free as soon as possible, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et so, caveat city: um, the debt is a tool. It's a powerful tool. Um, you don't want to mess around with power tools. If so, if you if you if you're in a vulnerable vulnerable situation or you don't know how to use it as a tool, then you can just stay away from it. Um, if you want to not have any debt because that makes you feel more comfortable, then that's fine too. Um, all that is fine. But if you want to use debt, then it can be a powerful tool because of exactly what we we're talking about earlier. You kind of you get the other side of this dynamic. Your the inflation is reducing the amount of your debt faster than the than you're having to pay interest on it. Ooh, interesting. So even though the interest rates are high right now, and I feel the sting of the mortgage payments because I'm like, bloody hell, this has gone up way more. I'm actually getting a good deal. Because inflation is higher than that interest, Spot even on. though it doesn't feel like it, because I can't feel the effects of inflation as much as I can feel the monthly extra six hundred quid that's disappeared <laughs> yeah. thanks to my interest rate on my mortgage. Exactly, that's it. So it's definitely not as straightforward as it was. So like when you had zero interest rates, then it's just all oh, we'll just go nuts. Like why not? <laughs> like, but if you could if you could lock in that low rate forever, then you'd go, well, you'd just be rational to just go and borrow as much as you possibly can. So people did um but now it's like obviously more complex than that but yeah you're exactly right it's the same like inflation is doing you a favor every day you don't you don't see it you see the interest payments that you're making out but you don't you don't kind of see the 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 effect of which the real value of your debt is being paid down Mm. for you by inflation so and it aligns you with the government so like the government's borrowing more money than anyone else they benefit from it so why shouldn't you (laughs) Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess one thing that, that's really surprised me about the US when I watch personal finance US YouTubers, you can lock in an interest rate for 30 years on a mortgage. Yeah. Whereas here, it's like five years if you're lucky. And I'm like, damn, I wish I'd locked it in for five years, like three years ago. I know. Yeah. How, how can they just do that for 30 years? And why can't we do that in the UK? I don't know. I think it's, it's, I think it's because of the way everything ends up getting insured. By the government ultimately i don't know how it all works but there is a reason why they're allowed to because i because if you think about it the, the bank is taking on a huge amount of risk like if because they they're having to give this to you for all this time they don't know what's going to happen in the future but there's some way that which it all works itself out um but yes sadly we can't do that so when interest rates were like i was trying to lock everything in for as long as i possibly could and i was like and like, there aren't that many like a 10 year kind of products around 10 is as far as you go but even if it meant i was paying more i'd go and lock everything in for 10 years if i could it's like yeah. well it could go down a bit but it could also go up a lot mm. so it's yeah. asymmetric so that was the mental model that i didn't have because i've only ever lived in a time of zero percent interest mm. rates and so when i got like a 1.5 percent for two years or two percent for five years i was like oh come on <laughs> yeah. obviously i'm only gonna i'm gonna go for 1.5 percent for two years because i get optionality and then i can exit the mortgage two years from now yeah. and 1.5 is less than two exactly and now i'm like 
tapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had all these people kind of like um, calling in to ask us questions on our podcast and we're like, when interest rates, when you could borrow for like less than 2% and go, oh, what do you think? Should I lock in? Like rates could go down a bit. It's like, they could go down, could go down a bit, but also, are you not happy with this rate? Just like lock it in for as long as you can. Nice. Yeah. I should have uh, called, called in a question for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are the different types of debt and are some better than others? Yeah. So um, mortgage debt is pretty much the best type of debt you can have. Like, like best. I mean, obviously, some people don't want to have debt on their own home, but the great, the good thing about it is you can, it's relatively cheap. You can borrow a lot. You can borrow a lot of it because it's about the against the value of the asset. So if it's, you're looking at investing in property, you can normally borrow up to like 75% of the asset. And because the asset is expensive, it means you can borrow a lot of money quite cheaply. And they're not going to – a lot of really bad stuff would need to happen for them to suddenly ask for it back. And so if you – because the property market tends to not go through massive swings, and it certainly doesn't on a day-to-day, week-to-week level, whereas you can borrow against your stock market portfolio – but that could go down like multiple percent in a day, at which point they'd go, oh, actually, you breached this limit now. We want it back. So, Oh, is that a margin call? Yeah, exactly. Ah, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so you so, – so so that so prop, so mortgage debt is pretty much the best type there is um other types of debt are like borrow, borrowing against yeah assets like your stocks not a good idea for most people like very very dangerous um things like i don't know like student debt or whatever like can still it's it's not something to use as a financial tool in terms of like going and investing probably but can still be a good thing to do because you're kind of, it allows you to gain future earning power so you're basically investing in your future ability to earn more money yourself in theory in theory <laughs> yes. yeah doesn't always work that way um and like like credit card debt or whatever like generally the interest payment is so high that whatever you did with it would have to have such a ludicrous payoff that it's just not going to happen okay i have more questions about the mortgage thing but we'll come to that when we talk about the property stuff cool um principle number three avoid fixed income investments uh what is a fixed income investment and why is it bad um so the the main type of fixed income instrument is bonds which we talked about which is effectively either which is lending money to either the government or a big company um the reason there's so you you'll, you'll lend a certain amount of money for a certain amount of time and you're like making a loan to a friend effect, effectively if you're mean enough to charge them interest. So it's like, I'll lend you money for this period of time. You'll give me my, my money back in 10 years. And every year you'll pay me 3% or whatever it is. Okay. Um, the problem with that is that the income is fixed. So you, so even if, um, if you're, not only might what you're receiving not be enough to keep up with inflation, but also the money that you get back in 10 years' time is going to be worth less than yeah. it is today so you'll get it you're you're guaranteed you're kind of guaranteed to lose money on your principal over time yeah is, isn't this what happened with like silicon valley bank or something they put like 75 percent of their like cash into 10-year bonds like the day before the government announced interest rates were going through the roof mm. or something absurd and everyone's like oh my god <laughs> yeah that's a that's a different thing so like mm. what i was just talk, just talking about is like if you if you hold a bond all the way through to when you eventually get it paid back yeah. you know you know you're going to receive back the same amount of pounds or dollars that you gave but they're going to be worth less because of inflation um but what often happens is you invest in bond funds um which means that um 
well, let's park that and take the example of the Silicon Valley Bank, which is easier. So they they were in a situation where they might not have been able to hold it for the full 10 years because if people, if people come back and ask for that money back, they need to sell that that 10-year bond early. And for because the, without going into the mechanics of bond pricing, which is really tedious, you, you end up where the, you actually might have to sell it for less than its face value. So you end, so they ended up in a situation where if they'd been able to hold it, hold it for the entire time, no problem. But um, they couldn't do that, and so its value fell. So, yeah. But, the, yeah. but from the from, but from the perspective of the book, yeah, my kind of issue with it is like, well, yeah, you kind of if if this, if if inflation in the future ends up being higher than you think it's going to be, then this is not the best idea. And, and I should say as well, lots of people disagree with this. Like financial advisors will tell you about the importance of bonds. I'm not a financial advisor, so yeah, because financial advisors are like, oh, you know, the bonds are like the one thing you can trust because you can trust the government, and it's safer mm-hmm. uh, when you do the risk-adjusted stuff. Yeah, stocks equals risky, and bonds equals safe. Yeah, but Which you disagree is, with that assessment. We're sort of true, but then the the idea is that they're meant to do do like move in opposite directions, and so they kind of balance each other out. And so you so like if the if the stock market's doing really badly, then bonds people should move money to bonds and said bonds should do better so it kind of balances you out last year that did not work at all it was the worst year for a, diver- a diversified portfolio like that since like ever and i think that the, the mechanics of how things work have, fund- have fundamentally changed so now that's not necessarily going to be the case anymore so you just end up with like yeah bonds are just like bonds don't perform stocks don't perform nothing performs it's not, <laughs> it's not good principle number four invest in real assets talk to me about that yeah, so real assets basically mean stuff that you can touch, um, which is property, um, also like infrastructure, like government building stuff, um, commodities, gold, oil, might not want to touch oil, um, things like that, things that like real actual stuff really? in you the world. Really? should invest in gold? Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you should invest in all commodities, but gold is actually really interesting. But as, a gen- but as a general kind of principle around real assets, it's just like, when if things if they tend to do well when there's inflation as a very general rule because it's stuff that people want and need and it's like real so people can choose not to buy something else but you can't really choose not to buy any of this stuff um and it's um if we're going going into more troubled times as we might be as we kind of get to the end of this financial experiment then owning actual real stuff that people need is a pretty good idea Mm. and gold is kind of a special case because it's like it's got real world uses but it's mostly an investment asset but i guess if we look at the price of i mean i've never looked at the price of gold very much i think i did one time because my mum was like, why don't you invest in gold? And I was like, surely it's not going to outperform the S&P. And it didn't. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the extent of my knowledge about gold. Would you recommend norm- n- normal people buy gold as an asset class? It depends. It's so difficult to say about stuff for any of this stuff because it all depends on your objectives. All I can talk about is what I do, which is that I have a small allocation of gold because it's an it's an inflation hedge so broadly you expect gold again because gold is something real you expect gold to keep up with inflation over time and so at least if if what you could at least you're not kind of losing money by Mm. keeping gold but you wouldn't want to have everything in gold probably unless you believe in the imminent collapse of everything because you're it's not going to suddenly grow in the same way that the stock market does yeah and how liquid is gold, <laughs> as it were? Um, it's um, it's very, it's pretty much one of the most liquid markets in the world. Okay. And so, when you invest in gold, do you 
do you physically own own gold bars or is it like buy gold.com or I, whatever the thing is? I don't because I, I wish I did because it'd be cool, but yeah. um, no. Um, um, so there's loads of different ways of getting exposure to gold, including kind of like bond, uh, gold funds where it's kind of financialized. But what I do is I own physical gold, but it's basic, but it's in basically you buy it through a company and it's all like in a vault so they've got one big vault with a whole load of gold and then they can sort of like say well ali then your, your bar is this one like you've got yeah. this amount of it so if you if you ask them to post it to you they actually would oh so um okay. but in reality you don't want to do that you just want to own the thing but have someone else have all the hassle of looking after it nice that sounds handy um okay well, we're going to talk more about the, the the property stuff in a little bit because mm -hmm. that's um, I think a big big discussion. Uh, but the principle number five: invest in the stock market boringly. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by boring? I mean a couple of different things by that. So one is um, mostly not stock picking because for most people, stock trying to pick individual stocks is a really bad idea. It's a highly skilled skilled thing that most professionals can't do. So why would you be able to do it? Um, and even if you could, you could probably make a better return by going and spending your time doing something else to earn money. So most people shouldn't be having the exciting time of picking stocks. Um, also, boring in terms of the type of company you invest in so this is kind of this has kind of happened now since the book was written but when i wrote it it was like you had like companies like your netflix and tesla and everything else were fly flying high because it's all very exciting and everyone wants to invest in these companies and when money is cheap or free this is fine it's like making profits one day is absolutely fine They're like well this is great it's growing fast but then when the environment changes and you have um more and you have higher interest rates like we do now suddenly it's like, oh, actually making profit today sounds pretty good maybe we should have companies that do that and so so companies that are like, like, like called value stocks start doing better as people are more interested in boring companies like consumer staples things that people actually need it's not they're not going to suddenly 10x in, in value and start selling loads more stuff but it's just boring and predictable so that's kind of that's kind of happened now to a large extent but i think that's going to keep on happening because having it's it profit like money now is going to continue to look attractive compared to what we had in the past where it's just like as, growth is fun <laughs> and as long as you make money one day it's all good yeah i as as you said that it's it reminded me of just something something i've been thinking a lot recently which is when building a youtube channel and a business around this sort of thing historical advice has always been about grow now worry about making worry about making money later yeah and that's always been the advice i've given to people like don't worry about monetization unless you physically have to you know grow the audience for two years give value away for free etc 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 and then when you press the monetization button and you read a course or a book or whatever the thing might be suddenly you'll have all these people who know like and trust you and you'll have a torrent of people waiting to buy your product yeah but <laughs> um i gave a keynote last week when i was in austin texas uh, to a bunch of like beginner youtubers that we have in our course and i found myself saying that you know what actually if i were building a youtube channel today i would really focus on profitability i'd really focus on monetization not quite from day one but maybe day like 91 once i've made my first 12 20 50 videos however many it might be just like really thinking about the business model of it mm. because even in that creator economy thing like you work, you, we, the, these days you have to work so hard to get views. Mm. It's not like back in the day where once you grew subscribers, you could basically guarantee a certain number of views. Now every video just has to be good. Yeah. And if you're going to work for the views anyway, you may as well try and get the money from it now because you, there actually is no guarantee that that money will come later. Yeah. Uh, so I'm all about like building the money trees and the, the, the monetization routes. 
right now rather than worrying about it for for later yeah well, it makes a lot of sense to it makes it makes sense to kind of like give give away more than anyone else kind of like how we built our business and like it's kind of like right do like deferring gratification i suppose and and yeah. that it makes a ton of sense but then you also need to know i suppose validate that there is a business there yeah. and that you will be able to do something with it and also, like I suppose you could you could end up having a whole audience of people who just expect things for free. Then you ask them to pay for anything. This is outrageous. Yeah. How, how can you possibly do this? You sell out. Yeah, there are a bunch of YouTubers that have fallen into that mm. sort of, I guess, trap where they've sold something. The audience has responded very, very negatively, and they're like, "Oh my god," mm. because I guess people already have weird thoughts about selling. Yeah. And it's already like a hard enough thing that when you get the backlash, which is what you feared all along, suddenly yeah. it's like, "Oh my god!" I knew it was a bad idea to sell any product on the internet. Definitely. Yeah. Um definitely want to ask you more about the business thing uh shortly. So okay, so but we've so we've talked about investing in the sh- in the stock market boringly. Um we have a couple of questions from the audience in our deep diver community on mm-hmm. Telegram. Um so I'll just give you throw throw a couple of those at you and then we'd love, love to talk about property investment. Let's do it. So a question from uh Cleanthi says, what are some habits that cost people the most financially? Hmm. I'm going to take a slightly different way into this to to answer it because I think most of it's obvious. Like there's like there's there's all sort of people. A lot of it comes back to like conscious conscious spending and things like that. And so like you could people do everyone you do it I do it everyone does it to some degree. Like spends money on things that they don't need to. And there's but there's no kind of universal version of that. Um, what you but it's and the answer is different for everyone. So like what you should do is spend very little on your home like if you you want to get your housing costs as low as you possibly can because that's your probably your biggest cost for, for most people so you want to get as low as possible i don't do that at all because i have young kids i spend a lot of time at home i want to live in a really nice place and i want to live somewhere super convenient so i spend a lot of money on my housing so to other people that would be the wrong thing to do but it's the right thing for me. So I think it's very hard to have like kind of general rules around all this stuff. But I do think that what a lot of people do is probably on more on the earning side. So people, the answer to basically everything is to earn more. Like just like investing, earning like ridiculously high returns from, from your investments is really hard. And very few people can do it consistently. And the reason you've heard of the people who can, like Warren Buffett, is because there aren't many of them. So you can earn like a certain amount of, ret- of return, but you, like, pushing that boundary is hard. There's only so much you can save. You, know, you can cut to the bone, but you can't save beyond zero. So it's like there's only so much. So what, the variable you're left with is earning. And so the spending more time thinking about earning is the best thing that people can do. And that can be a a side business, a creator business, or that kind of thing. It could also be just having a more intentional approach to your career. Like you could, like, you could you kind of, if you really like treated your career as a kind of, like you you, type, you you are the product, you're taking yourself really seriously, then you probably should be job hopping and kind of trying to sort of like apply for new jobs frequently and move, move up because that's how you earn more. And kind of taking a strategic approach to your career. I think probably people spend too much time thinking about like the, the investing and the saving parts and not enough time on the earning part. I totally agree. I think that's a fantastic, fantastic point. Um, any advice beyond job hopping for people who are like, oh, hello, I, I guess I, you know, I'm listening to this and I haven't really thought about my career as it's or sort of my earning power as its own like financial mm. asset. Um, yeah. any, anything else you would advise people on that point? What you just said is so important. Like, do see like your earning power is 
especially when you're young, is the best financial asset you can ever have. Like there is, you, you can you can generate a potentially like infinite amount of wealth from your own earning power. Most of us don't, but you can. But you can, and the 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 younger you are, obviously, the more years you've got to do that, and also the more time you've got to develop skills that will allow you to do that. So I think really, really thinking about how to maximize your own earning power is what people should be doing. So like if you if you're twenty four years old and you've got you've got like ten thousand pounds to invest, then it's a really bad idea to be spending a really long time thinking about how to how can I invest this ten thousand pounds to maximize my return on it? Because even if you outperform the market by ten percent, it's still not much in the scheme of things. So you, be, so you should really be thinking about how can I grow my how can I grow my value? Because ultimately like you what you earn is kind of a multiple of how you how much value you create and how many people you can reach to create that value for so i suppose the economics of it would be with a youtube channel is you reach a large amount of people but you only get like a small amount for per per view or whatever but then you've got a course so you're creating a larger amount of value for a smaller number of people but it's like but that's the kind of way to be thinking about it and so there's and ultimately so you can do it you could do it in a job by go oh, okay well like what's the how can i grow the skills that are going to make me super valuable in this role that i'm in now and so and then kind of go and play that company off against others to go and like maximize my worth what skills are going to be like the most valuable in the future maybe at the moment it's things around ai building your knowledge there but it could be well how can i go how can i reach more people and so like an employer is like a monopoly buyer of your time and so you like well how could i go and do something create a business or could do something that will allow me to grow and reach create value for a large number of people so it's all that sort of stuff and there's so many different ways of doing it but it kind of the ultimately it comes down to leverage in some form or another trying find finding a way to be to reach a large number of people whether that's through media or through a business or whatever else or yeah. just learn to be super like incredibly insanely valuable for one particular employer or whatever so they just have to pay you a shitload mm. yeah that's the thing i think this is something that i've really started to ap appreciate as i now own a business and employ people just that like i think in the past though and and certainly the, the way i see some like a lot, a lot of people i know think about salaries is like you know like wages almost where it's like oh you know my employer is doing me a disservice by not increasing my wages and you know i'm gonna kind of get my act together and ask for a raise but they've they've said they don't want to give me a raise and it's like fundamentally if you provide value then you then they're they're almost forced to pay you for that value outside yeah. of certain like controlled industries where as a nurse and as a doctor there's a limit to how much value you can provide within the system of the nhs yeah but with, outside of the system of the nhs there is an unlimited amount of value you could potentially provide and so one of one of my team members was 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 asking the other day oh you know we were having a conversation and, and i said you know uh, we, we, we were talking about some some issues that she's having and and, and stuff and I said, you know, if if we could wear, wave a magic wand, what what would solve some of these issues? And she sort of jokingly said, well, if you doubled my salary, we would solve a lot of these issues. And I said, okay, I, I get that that was a joke, but let's think about it. What would it take for me to double to to, to what would it take for me to consider doubling your salary? Mm -hmm. And 
she just never thought in that way before. She was like, oh, I guess in, in, in her mental model is like a salary is like a thing. It's a fixed mm. thing. It's, it's not a completely made up arbitrary thing that a business owner or, the, or an employer just decides. It's like, just, it's, it's fixed. And, you know, the way you campaign for a salary increase is you follow the steps and you ask the right questions and stuff. Fundamentally, I was I was saying, look, if you, if you added an extra 500k of value to the business, of course I'm going to pay you an extra 100k. Like it's just a no-brainer. So yeah. let's figure out the way you can add 500k of value. Or if you do that inside your own business, or a side hustle or something, you get all 500k of the value. Whereas yeah. I, I I just think people don't really think in those terms. No, I completely agree. And I think that's that's that, that's where people are costing themselves. I think the question is like about mistakes people are making. That that that's it. It's like not thinking in those kind of terms because you do just it must come from from school and from uni and everything else. You kind of you do just you see, see your salary as something that is a fixed thing. But it, you you have to be the one to you have to be the one to change it. Because you as an employer, you're not going to suddenly offer to double the salary of any of your team members. Like you might offer them a raise, but you're just not going to, you're not going to do that. Why would you? But it's down to them to make that, to make that happen in the same way as if you want to earn more money as the business owner, you have to find a way of going and creating more value for, for more people. No one's going to just pay you more for fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, no, next question from Nacho Martin, who says, what is the most effective way, in your opinion, to manage finances as a couple? Mm. I think it really helps if you are aligned to start with, because said back at the very beginning, like you kind of got money blueprints from your parents and it kind of, it's all, it's all very ingrained that I think if you, if you grow up with a certain attitude around money and sort of things about if you grow up with an attitude that money is evil or people put the money bad or if you grow up with like a, you've like you're you really have very very little and so even when you've got a lot it's hard to realize that you've got a lot and that's hard to change so if you're entering into a serious relationship with someone i wouldn't do this on date number one or two um but have but having that alignment is really important so that's the first thing pick the right person but once you're beyond that i think the best thing that you can do is talk about it and not talk about it in terms of like people talk about like having a having like a, a money date every month where you sit and go through your finances and maybe that would work for some people i think a lot of people it wouldn't but if it would great but if not if it's just something that you talk about if so if you like if you're the person in the relationship who is um reading or listening to podcasts or whatever about this kind of thing trying to bring the other person into it and have conversations about it is really helpful because it's very easy in a couple to have one person who's going off and like learning a load about whatever it is and maybe they think that they've decided that bitcoin is the future because they've read all this stuff about it and the other person might get to a point of agreeing but because they haven't been on that whole journey, they're not just going to leap straight there. So you kind of have to go on that that journey together mm. and keep alignment. So if we have alignment in the first place and then keep that alignment. Nice. What are your thoughts on joint account versus individual account versus individual plus joint, all that stuff? Man, I don't know. Um I've been I'm very old. I've been married for a long time and it's and so we are finance has been joint for a really long time and so i've just never really thought about other ways of doing it hmm. i don't know what what do most people do uh, i i don't know like i've been i've been pulling a few friends about this and listening to a few podcasts about it one one way is that both 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 parties have individual bank accounts but then there is also a shared one and they sort of pay into it x amount every month sometimes it's proportional to income sometimes it's not depending on how people feel about stuff 
And so you can have a sort of your individual account is for discretionary spending that mm -hmm. you don't have to quote get permission for. Yeah. Like if you wanted to buy a gift or like wanted uh, to buy a PS5 and you knew that, you know, that would be your personal pot. Mm -hmm. And apparently that's nice because it means that you only have to quote discuss the bigger things that affect you both as a couple, but like for little things like discretionary spending on a PlayStation, in your case, you you may not have to get quote permission for that, which might rub you up the wrong way. Like there's yeah. all these different factors. Mm. But I guess, uh, how, how long have you been married for now? Like 12 years, 13 oh, oh, nice. years, something okay. like that. Yeah. So it's just everything goes into one big pot and you just don't think too hard about it? Or? Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of, it's probably not the sensible, like, you know, it's, it's probably not, not the sensible thing to do, but I don't know, it's kind of like we're into it. Like, you know, like, this is a, and we looked together like eight years before we got married. So it was just like, you know, this is a lifetime thing. And so like, it doesn't matter. It's all, it all sorts itself out. But there, but there's lots of situations where it's, you know, in the early days of a relationship, you probably don't want to necessarily go and do that. And then you get situations like what do you do if like one person's earning way more than someone else? Then does the person who's not earning so much have to go to the other one and, and ask for money? Like you don't want that. That's so weird, so, yeah. so yeah, exactly. yeah, I don't know how you crack it. Um, if you're open to sharing, uh, are there any uh, any any instances in your sort of I guess twenty years of being together where you've had friction related to money in the relation in the relationship? Hmm. And if not, can you? If, and if not, I guess why not? Because like most people argue about money, apparently according to the stats. Hmm. Um. I can't think of any friction. We got we got really boring marriage. We just get on really well. And like, don't, <laughs> don't 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 argue about things. But we. But I think. Like there has been a, like a pro, like processes of having to become aligned on certain things, and so I I had to like I've kind of got this natural kind of scarcity mindset thing, and so just so I'm all I'm always I'd always be like trying to trying to not spend money and like doing ridiculous things like walking for half an hour instead of spending a pound for the bus and things like things like that just don't make any sense. And my wife is far more well adjusted, and so I had to kind of get to a. I think we had to, to. She had to kind of bring me over to a point of going, like, "Look, it's fine. You can you can do this." And then like doing things like um, um, going and like we made a decision to like go and rent a really uh, a really expensive flat to live in because we wanted to. And it took me a long time to get there to get to the point of like, "Okay, this doesn't make sense," and like we don't have to do this, and whatever. But it's the right thing to do, and so we had to kind of work our way through that um but and i ended up sort of like speaking to friends about it and stuff and like getting outside perspectives as well because which i think is useful because like when it because we are all weird when it comes to money mm. like talking to different people about it and seeing how they do things is really helpful yeah okay nice thank you um i think that segues us nicely into uh property so you rent the flat that you live in yep that okay most people would say that's money down the drain what the, what the hell are you doing <laughs> yep um and that's wrong because I've done, I've done a video about this. Um, but when, why do why do I do it? So I do it because mainly it's um, purely even if it didn't make financial sense, you could debate whether it does or not. Um, I would still rent because I want the flexibility. So I don't. I just don't like the idea of being tied into some, to something. So I like to. I just like. I, I just like freedom. I like feeling that I, even if I don't want to do something, I could. 
So if I want to go and live in a different part of London, a different city, a different country or whatever, I could go and do it with a couple of months notice. I'm probably not going to do it, but I could. And that then that means something. Whereas if I go, well, if to do that, I would have to, I'd have to wait until I'd sold my house. And maybe it's not a good time to sell my house and this and that. No, I just don't want that. So, and I also don't want the responsibility. I want it to be someone else's problem if something breaks. And so they, they have to fix it. So there's all these psychological reasons. And lots of people have the exact opposite psychological reason. It's like, well, I want to own my house. So I know that I have somewhere that's mine, that's stable, that's blah, blah, blah. So you can't, ultimately the whole rent versus buy thing, you can never, no, no side can ever win on that because it comes down to these psychological factors, which people are just going to have different motivations on. Mm. But on the financial side, there are situations there are situations where you where it can surprisingly be a better deal to rent so i on the case of where i'm living i worked it out if i owned if i owned where i live now as an investment the return would be like some the yield would be something like two percent so well i could get a better return going investing in most other things and so i would i'll do that instead of locking up money in this asset that's not earning anything um but also people I think what people miss about this whole debate is there's always you're always going to have housing costs always it's impossible not to so if you're not paying pay money to a landlord you're paying money to a bank so when you make your interest payment the majority of that especially in the early years goes to paying the the interest rather than paying down the capital so you're either renting property from a landlord or you're renting money from the bank it's the same thing even when you've paid your mortgage off then you've still got housing costs because as well as the costs of upkeep and everything else, you've also got the opportunity cost of what you could be doing with that money. So if you live in a million pound house that's completely yours, well, that's great. You can't do anything with that million quid except live in it. So it's not really a lot of good. Whereas you could instead go and invest that in something else that produced a return for you. So it's really complex. And I think actually, if you figure it all out, um, homeowner, you, you need... Homeownership come out ahead for tax reasons, for lots of reasons. But ultimately, my position is you have to own something. You have to own assets, but you don't have to live in your assets. <laughs> okay. So, you so I I own property and I have all the benefits of capital appreciation and your mortgage being eroded by inflation and all that good stuff. I just don't live in it. Yeah, nice. I mean, the the those are exa exactly my reasons for <laughs> renting a place in London, uh, which is, and I've I've also done a video about this because <laughs> it was it was it was in a way a, a video to try and like because my mum would always be like this is a terrible decision like won't you just because so, I, I live with my brother she'd be like why don't you guys just buy a flat in London and I'd be like okay well firstly <laughs> like, where do we begin like firstly we couldn't afford to buy this place in London even if we tried. And then, and then she'd be like, "Okay, but like the house, like it, it doesn't have to be so expensive. Like, why not go into Zone Six? It's like, well, because it's Zone Six, it's miles away, and it's like right now while we're young, it's like we want to be in Central London. It's easy to get people on the podcast. We have a room for the podcast. Like, all of all of the different things add up. Mm. But I think the way my mom thinks about thinks about things, it's that psychological component of like, oh my goodness, renting is money down the drain, mm. and that is such a strong like belief. Yeah, and like getting on the property ladder is like, oh my god, the ultimate financial decision. Yeah. Um, I imagine you speak to a lot of people who have a, a, those ide identical worldviews. Um, oh, like you yeah, know, the like, same term as your mum. Yeah, no, yeah, like renting money down the drain, getting on the property ladder is the best thing you can do yeah. kind of thing. There's a lot of them in the YouTube comments. Um, yeah. yeah, there's, um, there's yeah, you, you will never, 
it's so entrenched you'll you'll never change anyone's mind mm. like and i'm i'm not interested in changing people's mind i think it's just it's like worth it if someone's open to it to kind of understand that there is a different perspective um but it's just so entrenched there's not a lot you can do about it mm. but but i think the whole concept of a property ladder doesn't really work anymore because it used to be the case that people would like go into a one bedroom flat and then they'd maybe trade up to two bed then move into a house but it doesn't happen anymore like first time buyers by far the most typical property for them to move into is a three bed um is a three bed house mm. and so because people are doing everything later in life and you often it's harder to buy a home so you're in your 30s by the time you're doing it or whatever you kind of move straight in there and often just stay there forever so there's kind of there is no kind of concept of of trading up and so it's just yeah it just doesn't you there are lots of reasons to expose yourself to housing and all the rest of it but if you if you don't know for sure that you're going to be there somewhere for a long time then the costs are moving huge like the stamp duty like if you if you bought a place in london the stamp duty on it would be extraordinary and then if you decided three years later you actually didn't want to be there anymore <laughs> then you'd end up paying it all again somewhere else and yep. so that's the thing and so i think there's lots of benefits to owning but then if you really if you don't know for sure that you're going to be in that place for say five to ten years then it's probably not going to work out and if when when you're young and you want to have all the options open to you do you really want to be tied into one particular geography because mm. of this one thing that you own yeah agreed um how uh, how how much of a goal do you think it should be for someone to buy their first property whether or not it's the, whether or not they live in it or don't live in it tricky um because like pro property especially property with a mortgage for some of the reasons we talked about is just it's just historically it's a great bet to make because you've got because even if property only goes up in line with inflation the fact that you've not put on you've not put all the money in so you're effectively leveraging inflation so you're so you're so if you put down like three quarter if you put down a quarter of the money and inflation is two percent then your annual return will be eight percent because you you haven't put all the money in so that's a pretty good bet you're 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 leveraging a force that the government and their central bank and the central bank and everyone else is trying to make happen so like, along like along the way peaks crashes all this stuff will happen but over the very long term that is a great thing to be exposed to but if you do it to own then there are drawbacks we just talked about them and if you do it to invest in then it's also really hard like if you invest being a being a landlord i'm not expecting any violins to come out at this point but it's hard <laughs> in that in that you're kind of you're taking a lot of financial risk like yeah. you're you're taking a huge amount of money which for most people will like take years and years and years and years to save up and you're putting it all into one asset so that's hard like if you're not spending if you're not nervous about that and you're not spending a lot of time researching it then you probably should be so it's tough um what what, what do you think of this whole this whole stuff around like you often hear the hear the narrative of which is true um you know it's impossible for young people to get on to, to buy any property these days because the prices have gotten so high and then we're ending ending up renting for forever and, mm -hmm. and things like that i guess it sort of feeds back into our initial discussion around like there are no easy answers to this problem yeah because the price goes up because supply and demand mm -hmm. and it's hard to make houses and we can't just wave a magic wand and 3d print a house yet um people's salaries are not going up in line with the prices of houses mm -hmm. uh for all sorts of reasons 
um, of which some of them might be the government is evil, but like there are all sorts of reasons beyond that. And so it actually is just genuinely hard to get on the pro- quote, property ladder. Yeah. Actually, is, is it just one of those things that I guess we just got to live with it? Yeah, it's one of those, how do you solve it when you wouldn't start from here type problems. It's just like, I don't, it's, it is harder. Um, there is, but it's a matter of, it's been a matter of policy. Like we kind of skirted over this, but like when um, the 2008 financial crisis happened, the response to that was to print a load of money. Um, and they then, then basically the effect, that money went to people who owned assets. And the, the, that was, it was deliberate. Like the idea is if you make asset owners feel wealthy, then they'll go and spend money in the economy which will then get the economy going again. So it was a, the point of that, one of the points of that was to make people who owned assets and were wealthy even wealthier. And so you've had like sort of 15 years of that happening. And so people if you if you owned assets in 2008, great for you. And if you didn't, not so great for you. So so it's got way 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 harder. And I it's hard the way that that's been kind of papered over right now is um like longer mortgage terms. So like 20% of new mortgages are being taken out for 35 plus years because that's a way of spreading the payments out and making it work. But there's got to be a limit at some point. Mm. Like, it, like in other countries, you get mortgages that your children inherit. So like yeah. you, you can go quite a long way with it. But I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's hard. Yeah. And I guess for individuals who want to, you know, prosper in a, in a financial system that's rigged against you, uh, I, you know, the way I, I often think about this is, Save to get the emergency fund, step mm-hmm. one. Step two, invest in yourself to boost your own earning power. Ideally, start a business or a side hustle. And now you've got money. Yeah. And now you're <laughs> and, and, and now you're winning in yeah. this financial system that's rigged against you. But for a lot of people, the oh, so I've got to start my business is a I mean, it's just it's just the fastest way and I suspect probably most reliable way to actually make decent money unless yeah. you're in investment banking or something like that. Yeah. Which if you are, you would know it anyway. Exactly. It's easier than easier said than done, but ultimately, like you have to kind of let go of this idea that you the the default path is not good. Uh, there was a part. There was a time when the default path was okay. Like you can go and you could get a job that you could keep that job forever. That job would allow you to have a decent standard of living and um, buy, own your own home and everything else. And then you'd retire and you'd get a pension, and that would be great. But that default doesn't exist anymore. Like the default now is that. You, your living standards are falling. You can't afford to own a home. There probably isn't going to be a pension by the time you're by the time you're old. So the default's no good. So you have to take responsibility and change something, mm. which is it's really hard to do. Yeah. But I think that's you, you kind of have to get into that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of business, what does your portfolio of businesses look like? And because I guess like one one thing that really struck me about the property podcast when I discovered it in like 2017 mm-hmm. was that. You guys were running the playbook of build a personal brand, give out content for free, monetize it on the back end. And I was, th- th- this was like six months into my YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, I love what these guys are doing. Mm. I can see that these guys are really switched on when it comes to the whole building a business around a key person of influence, around a personal brand, you and, you and the other Rob. Yeah. So what, what does that look like? And how did, how did it mm. evolve over time? I credit the other Rob with all the clever stuff around this, but he he was always very firm on giving everything away, like give give away all the knowledge and sell the implementation, and mm, so nice. it allowed you to and we allowed us to kind of like move the free line a really long way because like if you're selling courses, which is like the typical way people in property monetize, yeah. you're always having to hold something back. Yeah. Um, but um, we didn't do that, so 
and because we were never selling anything in that way people kind of trusted us and so it was easy to build that up so that's what we did for a long time because the uh, the economics of the business behind it has kind of been through different iterations but effectively we are making enabling high value transactions for a small number of people yep. so because we you the economics for each sale are really good we can afford and it costs us because media is kind of costless in terms of distribution we can have 99 listeners who pay us nothing forever for that one who does and that's fine and it's great and everyone wins mm -hmm. so there's never any pressure for for us to make it work and we've never we've never run ads on our podcast or anything else because why would we there's no there's no point so we've been through kind of different we kind of followed the audience in terms of what they wanted. And so we built up an audience like, what do you want? Well, you want a letting agency. So we started by the late, as you know. And um, I imagine that's quite a hard business. Yeah, turns out really hard. <laughs> Where you're like being like squeezed on the margins because people are price sensitive on that particular front and yes, everything. Not a good business. Which is probably why you sold it. Yeah, tough. Yeah. tough. Uh, the good thing about it is it's sticky. So yeah. it's like, you you're you, it's it's you you kind of you get a client once and you can keep them for years and years and years um but it's tough operationally really hard mm. and the margins are not good yeah. um but then when we started we had like um like a tax consultancy for a while and we kind of, we were kind of following the audience oh, and yeah. then i had i had a call with one of your tax consultants mm. like many years ago yeah it was quite helpful just like a one-off thing yeah. yeah um and that was just like there's nothing wrong with the economics of that but it's just kind of we would we just ended up like stretching ourselves really yeah. thin um, because we were doing like the classic thing that you're meant to do, which is like, well, you know, you build up an audience, you find out what they want. Yeah. Um, turned out what they wanted was a lot. And so we tried to do a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was just kind of too much. Yeah. So we've now, we've kind of divested all that stuff and gone back to something. Re the real core of it is like, we give away all the education, we do all that. And I love doing that. Um, and then behind it, we've got Property Hub Invest, the business you know about, that helps people uh, buy property and then we've also got a fund which is newer which is to basically enable people to buy uh, buy into a property portfolio with a far smaller amount of money so there's they're two different kind of models but mm. they're both based around the same core thing which is just investing like we know how to invest that that's a bit we can do all this operationally really hard stuff yeah <laughs> let's not do that yeah we've 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 really had the same exact same realization with our business where when we try and do too many things because they are the right things to they feel like the right things to do because people are asking for them and because you know when when the audience says they want something it's like great let's give it to them etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just like the hard stuff is just just a bit of a faff and a bit of a faff at scale when running a business as you know is uh, in an enormous faff <laughs> and it takes focus definitely. away from the small amount of things that are driving the most value definitely and as uh, why do why did you get into this in the first place. Why do I get into it? So we like creating stuff and yeah, teaching fun. and it's all the rest teaching of it. educational stuff and writing educational books and yes. Yeah. So if you then spend yeah. all your time dealing with a load of aggro and stuff, which has nothing to do with that, then yeah. then it's like, oh, that's no fun. Yeah. Uh, how how big is your team? Like, what does the business look like? Um, it's about forty people. Four zero. Mm -hmm. Bloody hell! What did they broadly do? <laughs> um, property. It's annoying, as you know. And yeah. so um, we've got a team of people who are involved in getting the um, getting transactions through. So from the point of saying, yes, I want to buy this property to actually 
owning it. We could all have to hold people's hands through that process. Yeah, very much so. I really appreciated that as part of the process. <laughs> yeah, that's for me. That's the like the, the the selling point is supposed to be like we get you a discount and we pick the property for you, and that's all great. But I think the actual hand holding is a really big part of it. Mm. Um, so that's a whole team. Um, there's a whole team around. There, there's a sales team, so the people you'll speak to who actually will like go through your strategy with you in the first place. Um, there's a lot of finance because of the fund, and so we've got we've got a whole a whole finance team with accountants and all the rest of it, um, and just lots of other. Oh, we've got the the team who goes out and actually finds and assesses the investments in the first place, and then lots of other stuff and like. HR, IT, all that kind of stuff. And so it's um it adds up to a lot. It's relatively it doesn't sound it, but it's relatively lean. But there's just there's just so much going on that that's um it's not the kind of business you couldn't run it with three people. It's just mm. not possible. And if you got rid of if you if you only did the invest business and got rid of the uh, property fund stuff, what would that look so like? you could then you kind of you'd lose like bits of you'd you'd lose kind of like some finance and compliance and mm. all that sort of thing. So I don't know. I don't know what proportion of the business would be, but you could definitely, you could definitely slim it down somewhat. And then, what's your and the other Rob's role in the business? Roles. Um, it's evolved in a big way over time, and it started out with us kind of figuring it out as we went along, yeah. and we kind of like by by default, you were kind of joint CEOs, which is a terrible idea because then it's just like everything is either both of your problem or you both leave it for each other. So shouldn't do that. Um, but then um, then we sort of been I've we've been through lots of different iterations of it where we're each looking after different parts. Um, where we've now got to is kind of my happy place where I'm mostly doing the education part of it and doing the newsletter and the YouTube channel and all that kind of thing. And the other Rob is the actual CEO. And so he has ultimate responsibility for running the business. But we've now been doing it for such a long time that we've eventually worked our way around to a place where we've got a really good team. So a lot of the stuff just happens. And that took a long time to get to. A long, long time. (laughs) Yeah, it takes ages to get to a place where you feel like yes, things yeah. things are working, things are. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know how you find the right people other than just like have a lot of the wrong people and keep the ones who work out. But we kind of ended up with like an amazing team and mm. some of whom have been with us for like eight years and stuff. And we've got like absolute superstars. But I don't know how you find the superstar every time. Mm. Yeah, we have, and we 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 now have a very extensive interview process. But it's also ideal, and I guess for for, for you as well. Like for us, we can recruit from our audience. Yeah. And that's Always just like a way. huge hack. Yeah. Because it's like, I speak to friends who run companies and they're like, oh man, recruiting is so hard. I'm like, really? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. I guess, I guess it is. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't have so much inbound. Yeah. That's the best thing. Like, yeah, you, there's a pre-built filter, which is another great, which is, which is so great about the whole content thing. Cause it goes for your, mm. for your audience as well. Just like your, and your, your customers are kind of pre-selected as well. Like you're, you're not going to have that many customers, I imagine, who are a nightmare to deal with because they've been filtered through your worldview already and yeah, they're exactly. kind of your type of person. And when I hang out with them in real life, like we like we, we did a meetup in Austin last week for like 80, 80 of our previous students. They're all great. Yeah. They're great vibes. They're the sort of people who vibe with my stuff, make similar kind of content. They want to be YouTubers. They have businesses. Like, oh, I yeah. just love these people. This is what you want. Um, any tips for someone listening who uh, is interested in setting up a sort of business like this where it's like your content, free free content, 
you know, I, th I, th I in, in my head, I call it the 99-1-1 rule, which is 99% of the content is free, 1% is paid for the 1% who can afford it Ooh. or something to that effect. Oh, 1% are services for the 1% who can afford it. Mm. Like I'd much rather, like I love the fact that we charge 5K for our course, for our implementation e-course yeah. for a tiny number of people, which mm. funds the entire business to give, be able to give all the content for free to everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so any tips for someone who loves that the idea of that creatorpreneur business model? Um, I'm not sure because we've just kind of it just kind of happened and I don't know how I would now go and do it intentionally it's one of those things where if you kind of tell the story if you tell the story in retrospect it all makes perfect sense but I don't know how you'd do it from scratch I think that I would definitely encourage that model because I think it's it's more sustainable than any other way of doing it that, that I'm aware of. And it just avoids any kind of, it allows people to have all the stuff, well, 99% of the stuff for free, which is great. You don't have to worry about arbitrarily drawing a line somewhere, which mm. is amazing. It means you can outcompete everyone who is trying to hold back. Um, I suppose that you'd have to have to make really sure that there is a business there mm. and it has to be like high value, high margin, high whatever to to make it work. So you you wouldn't want to spend years like that building a business and then realize when you try to charge that one percent for something that actually they don't want it or they don't charge enough to make it work. Yeah. Do you see any examples, interesting examples of like your students doing things like that? Yeah. Um essentially the business model that most educational channels that I know go down is exactly that. Um, but uh, where most of the content is free, some of the content is paid. Uh, but then you get into the the issue of where do you draw the line? Uh, one way of getting around that is don't draw the line at all and just charge for implementation. Yeah. But I think the other way of getting around that line is by saying, you know what, we're just going to give everything away for free slowly over time. But when we make, when we make a course, we put it all together in one place. Yeah. We give the worksheets the the tangible assets or the somewhat intangible assets bundled together. And so yes. Technically, someone could find out all this information by looking on the internet, but what they're paying for is the uh, curation. They're paying for saving time, and yeah. they're paying for the support options we offer along the way to kind of hold their hand. Yeah. Because actually, hold, holding someone's hand is a ridiculously valuable thing when they're buying a property, mm -hmm. as I've been handheld by Jawad, one of your team members. Yeah. Uh, or, but also when they're starting a YouTube channel, like our team holds people's hands through the process because it's actually quite hard and yeah. quite like emotionally hard rather than like conceptually hard. Mm -hmm. Um. And so all of those, I think, are ways to monetize the education business. Yeah. But then we see people who are, and we're trying to go in, into this ourselves, you know, you could release physical products. Uh, that's a whole faff, but then it does mean you have a business that's potentially saleable. Mm -hmm. You can make an app. Apps with subscription revenue seem to be like an, a great thing, but the startup costs are absolutely enormous and it's hard to compete with apps, Yeah. Uh, which are more of a commodity than other things. So the pros and cons of every business model, but... Yeah. I think I still think it's a great a great way to to make money. It's weird, isn't it? You could be, you can ask someone to pay for an app, and like, what? No, apps are free. But then you ask people to spend five grand for a course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, <laughs> it's weird. Like the, the the people who who spend five grand on our course, we say, hey, you know, we'd recommend VidIQ Chrome extension. Oh, is that free? <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> who cares? It's like seven quid a month. Like, come yeah. On. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. But it's, I think it's a great it's a great great model, mm. and it's 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 worked really well for us and it works really well for others do you think about how much you are tied up in it like is your business is your business saleable and do you care uh it's not saleable and I, I also don't care um because i think someone would have to have to offer me a stupidly large amount of money to part with it yeah 
And even then I would really consider it because if I think, what would I do if I had all the money in the world? I'd still make YouTube videos and I still do podcasts because it's just cool. Yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't sell courses. That's the only thing that we that I wouldn't do if I had all the money mm. in the world. Um, but having said that, we are trying to, and, and so partly this is why I'm keen on the property thing because it is a thing that is completely decorrelated to my popularity on the internet. Yeah. But also why we want to build a productivity app and like tech accessories mm -hmm. because those are potentially saleable. And just, as you said, having the option to know you could sell it if you wanted to, but even if you don't want to take the option, there's something nice about having that freedom, yeah. which currently we don't have because it's all tied to my personal brand. Mm, interesting. What about for you guys? I I think that there's a way of making it saleable, but we've got no interest in doing that yeah. anytime soon. Because I think with... Uh, with the fund, like we've deliberately given it a different brand, and nice. we've and we, it's like it comes to a point where it's like it's 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 its own thing. Like there are reasons there are reasons for investing in it which are completely different from the the we're the podcast guys, and so I think like it's almost a point like we are. Uh, almost like we're advertising the fund or we're an affiliate for the fund or whatever but it's like that's not that's not us and so we're trying to create a kind of separation just because that seems to kind of make sense nice but for the most part I've got no problem with being the being, being the podcast guy being the podcast guy yeah well rob thank you very much for being the podcast guy you've uh <laughs> helped me get into property investing which has been uh, a, a somewhat fun journey <laughs> somewhat uh but i'm sure i will be even more thankful for uh, thankful for it as things compound over time and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.